You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. Uh, If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. We'll be in the passages that uh, Ina just read. Uh, Obviously, it's been a chaotic week. I don't know uh, what your week has looked like. I know that the winter storm affected uh, our church in many different ways. Specifically, what I'm thinking of now is our, our church flooded this week because of a pipe burst because uh, of the cold temperatures. And so if you are tuning in for the first time and you're like, what is happening? The majority of our church right now is watching online because we're not open for in-person services. We just have a few uh, staff and elders and deacons that are here. But I want to begin by giving an, an update on where we are uh, with our church building. So last Wednesday... Uh, Adam Hawkins and I walked, uh, came up to the to the church building to just to check on it because we'd heard stories of what was happening to people's homes and other churches of friends that we know. And so uh, we pulled up and we saw water coming out from the doors and we walked into the church and we walked into what was about three inches of water uh, in our foyer, in our hallways, and, and in the worship center. Pretty much the entire wing of this building had flooded because a, a sprinkler uh, pipe had burst just inside our, our main entrance. Um, and so while it initially looked uh, really devastating, I mean, the initial impact of that was, uh, you know, a worst case scenario in a lot of ways, uh, we were able to, uh, in that day, control the water, get the water shut off. And then what happened that afternoon, and this is what I, I love so much about our church, um, people just started showing up. <clears throat> Word got out that the church had flooded, and so staff started showing up, and, and church members came to help. We posted a video telling the church what was going on, and in that video specifically said, please don't come because the roads are dangerous, and many of you ignored that, and you, and you came anyway. And uh, what happened was what, what was just me and Adam at one point uh, trying to do damage control turned into a small army of people with brooms and eight-foot tables literally pushing water outside of our worship center and outside of our foyer, uh, outside of, of our doors. And um, from Wednesday afternoon into the evening, Joe, one of our elders, calculated that we uh, removed 40,000 gallons of water from inside the building and pushed that outside. And, and really what that did between that work that we did on Wednesday and then the work that the remediation company did starting Thursday afternoon, um, we were able to to control a lot of the damage. And what it looks like is it looks like the damage is just going to be to our floors and our carpet. And so what we're hoping is we're hoping, this is maybe a little ambitious, but I think we'll be able to do it. We're hoping to be able to return to in-person services next Sunday, which is just incredible. Yes. Amen. Uh, Right now, we still have equipment that's working to dry out the building that's everywhere, so uh, we couldn't be open for in-person this morning. We just invited a handful of staff and elders and deacons uh, who promised to be very vocal in your absence, right? That's encouraging. Um, so here's what I know. I know that our story, when the, when the building flooded uh, Wednesday, our story went from bleak uh, to kind of optimistic. It went from uh, really potentially devastating to Uh, not being as bad as what we thought, and it turned around really quick. And and, and here's what's true. So, so many of you, uh, that was not your story this week at all, that there were ways in which uh, the winter storm uh, brought crisis into your life, whether that's through 
you know, a home that's falling apart. And so what I want to do is I want to acknowledge that um, some of you are in the middle of that crisis still, trying to clean things up in whatever way that, that the crisis of this week impacted you. Uh, we want to know about that. I know many people in our church are, are, have offered to help. Many of you are already helping others that are in need. Uh, many of our home groups, you know, some people did have power and others didn't, so they lived together for a few days. And so uh, our church is, is reaching out. And, and if, if you are someone who is, has been deeply impacted, there's financial strain for you or just some sort of catastrophe for you, would you please let us know? You can just email. We'll, we'll put it up on the screen for you. Just email elders at citizenschurch.com elders at citizenschurch.com, and we want to pray for you, and we want to find out however we can uh, to help you and try to meet some of those needs for you. Let me pray, and then we'll get into Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Father, we love you, and as Ina prayed, Lord, we, we come this morning uh, in need of encouragement, in need of uh, being reminded of uh, who you are and how, how constant you are, God, uh, how you are unchanging uh, when so many things unravel in our lives, that you, God, are unbreakable as many things are so broken around us. And that, God, that includes things that are connected to the, the storm this week, and that includes things that, that are going on in the hearts of and lives of people in our church or watching right now that, that are unknown even to me, God, but, are, uh, but you see and you know. So pray that you would bring comfort. I do pray, God, that um, those who are in need, that they would reach out, Lord, that they would email us, reach out in some way so that we can be the church the way that you've equipped the church to be, uh, to come alongside and to help share burdens because we believe in a God who has lifted our burdens and who walks with us in our pain and our difficulty. We love you and we thank you. Amen. Matthew five seventeen through 20. We are moving forward in our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, if you're with us, if you've been with us this year, you know we spent about five to six weeks in verses 13 through 16 uh, of Matthew 5. And last fall, we spent about 12 weeks in the Beatitudes. And so we're moving forward, and that takes us to verses 17, 18, 19, and 20, which is actually Jesus's summary statement for the entire sermon. So what that means is all that we've done so far is actually his introduction, and now he's getting into really the thesis of his sermon. Uh, and everything that comes after verses 17 through 20 is Jesus expounding on verses 17 through 20 in some way. And it's really dense. If you listened as Ina read it for us, it's words like law and prophets, and scribes, and Pharisees, and righteousness, and kingdom of God. And, and maybe for many, that's a lot of uh, unfamiliar language, especially if you're new to the Bible, or if you're new to Christianity. For all, that's really dense language, and, and the feel of these verses is that they're just pretty weighty and pretty intimidating. Uh, and what Jesus says here, because it is uh, dense and maybe unfamiliar, it's really easy to get lost in it, um, and not just to, to, to get lost in it, but maybe to, to be afraid because of it, but it's incredibly important. These four verses are, uh, are some of the most significantly packed theological verses in the entire Bible. In fact, one commentator said about this passage, it's the most important passage in the entire Bible on how to read the Bible. Tim Keller said it's one of these rare places in the Bible where the whole of biblical thought, the whole uh, sweep of, of God's thoughts are packed into four verses. And so while the language can be intimidating or the language can be unfamiliar, what Jesus says here, we can't afford to miss or else we will miss everything else that he says. It's that kind of passage. 
But as important as they are, and even as dense as they are, there is a very simple thing that Jesus is doing here. So I just wanted to try to lay a simple metaphor over what he's doing so that we can uh, lean in uh, for clarity. He's having uh, a theological DTR in these four verses. DTR means define the relationship. I don't know if anyone even uses that anymore or if anyone other than me has ever used that. But in September of 2005, in a dorm room in College Station, Carrie and I had a conversation where we had a, what was called a DTR. We defined the relationship. We had known each other in, by that time for about a, a few months and had gone on a few dates. And so we sat down uh, in a dorm in College Station and we talked about what this is. Who are we to one another? How do we relate to one another? What are we calling this, this relationship that we have? And I said, uh, I would like for us to date. Like, I'd like for us to be boyfriend and girlfriend. I'd like for us to be together, exclusively together, like not dating other people. And, and I would love for this relationship to be headed towards, you know, a, a God-honoring, serious relationship, maybe even marriage. And I said all that and, and then said, is there a chance that you're interested in that at all, any, any part of that? And she said, yes, I, I would like that. And I thought, for sure, she misunderstood. So I was like, no, 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 like, we're a thing now, like a couple. And she said, yes, I, I get it. I would like that. And I said, okay, and you're, like, you're willing to say that out loud with other people around even. And uh, I think she was ultimately won over by my confidence is why she dated me. But I, I was told after the fact that what we had had was a conversation called a DTR. We define the relationship. This is who we are to one another. This is how we define ourselves to others. If they ask, it's how we relate to one another. And that conversation just continued to happen up until we were married. As we started moving more seriously towards marriage, we continued to define how we relate to one another. And that's something that we, that we do even outside of our romantic relationships, right? Like in your job, uh, there's some sort of definition over how you relate to your uh, boss or how you relate to your other employees. It's what your job just description is, right? As a parent, all of parenting is defining the relationship over and over and over again. No child, you don't tell me what to do, right? I tell you what to do in love. I'm the dad, you're the child. I'm the parent, you're the child. And so it's taking these two people, they're these two things, and defining how they relate to one another. And, and, and really, that's what Jesus does here around some crucial, very important theological relationships, right? At this point in his ministry, he has already announced that the kingdom is coming, that God is bringing his new world. He had performed miracles. He had taught. Uh, he had a reputation that was growing, and surrounding that reputation were these questions about him. So, Jesus, you're situated in an Old Testament story. What do you believe about Moses? What do you believe about the Sabbath? What do you believe about the law? And he, uh, he, he, Some people, there were rumors about him that he didn't actually care about the things that God cares about. There were rumors about him that he was trying to, in some way, subvert what had been going on in that story. And so Jesus gathers these people together, and what the sermon is, so much of the sermon is him gathering these people together, and he launches into this theological DTR around a few important theological ideas. In 17 through 18, he defines the relationship between himself and the Old Testament. That's the first one that he defines. Uh, his, the relationship between him and God's covenant and God's laws and God's promises. And then in 19 through 20, he defines a second relationship, and it's between us and righteousness. He defines a relationship between his people and what it looks like for them to become righteous. And it's the second relationship between us and righteousness that the rest of the sermon is all about, but it relies on the first. So in 17 through 18, it says this, 
Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's defining how he relates to God's story, to God's covenants, everything that's come before him. We need to do some work around the word law to understand what what Jesus means and to understand what I'm getting this. For us, the word law is filled already with certain ideas and certain images and connotations. Like I hear law and I immediately think of a speeding ticket because that's where I'm most familiar with the law. That's where I interact with it most. Uh, For many, they hear law and they just think it's synonymous for rules. So when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, we probably exclusively think about all of the rules maybe in the Old Testament. Uh, The Greek word that is used here is the word nomos. It is Hebrew for the word Torah. Maybe you're familiar with that word. Torah means more than just law, so much more than just law. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, I've not come to abolish the Torah. And then he adds a word to it, or the prophets. The prophets are guys like Joel and Amos and Isaiah who spoke the story of the Torah into their reality to try to call the people of God to fidelity to God's covenants in that story and that mission. In Jesus' day, hear me, the phrase, the Torah and the prophets, was a way to describe the entire Old Testament. It was a way to describe all of Hebrew Scripture, all of, of the books uh, that came before your New Testament that's in your Bible. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You can think about it this way. Uh, that's Jesus' Bible. It's the only Bible he has is the Old Testament. All of the books of the New Testament are written after Jesus ascends. So the only Bible Jesus has is the Old Testament. It's the one that he reads. So when he says the law and the prophets or the Torah and the prophets, he means the Bible that he read since he was a boy, the one that was taught to him by his mom, the one that Luke chapter 2 tells us he studied as a teenager, the one he committed to memory and could quote at any time. It's the one that tells the story of God and the people of God and God's covenants and the ethical commands like the Ten Commandments and the Psalms of David and the prophecies of Joel and Isaiah and the seasons of exodus and exile and rebellion and revival and all of that that is the first 39 books of the Bible that's in your lap or on your phone. And Jesus holds those 39 books up and says, don't think that I've come to abolish these. Let me define the relationship that I have with those first 39 books, the story it tells, the promises that it speaks of. I'm going to define it for you. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. That word abolish means to annul or to invalidate, to cancel. Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. A hundred years after Jesus, there was a a false teacher named Marcion, uh, and he did not like the portrait of God in the Old Testament. And so he taught that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were actually two different gods, two different entities. And so he fashioned his own Bible to support that claim, and he took the entire Old Testament out of the Bible, and then he took any part of the New Testament that would unite the Old Testament and New Testament, he scrapped it out of his Bible and created something that didn't have that. Guess what verse didn't make it into his New Testament? This one, because it makes the exact opposite claim of what he was teaching. It says that Jesus is saying here, I did not come to get rid of the Old Testament. I did not come to, to pit myself against that God as some sort of new God. He said, I did not come to abolish. I came to fulfill. And that word fulfill is a really full word. It's a really rich word. It means I came to complete. It, it, 
it cast this imagery as if the Old Testament story was a cup that was half full and Jesus came to fill it to the brim. Jesus came to, 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 to make it to where it was overflowing. I didn't come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I came to fill it up. He doubles down that in verse 18. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota and a dot, they were the smallest markers in all of the Hebrew alphabet. Jesus is saying, I won't leave even the smallest detail incomplete. He defines the relationship. How do I relate to the Old Testament? To, to say it another way, I am the very thing that the Old Testament was waiting for. I am the very thing that the Old Testament was pointing towards. And it means two things for us. If the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament is fulfillment, it means you cannot understand Jesus without reading the Old Testament. You can't understand what Jesus is doing, who he is, if you don't know the Old Testament story. If we just start with Jesus, it's like starting a movie an hour in, right? The Bible is one story told over 66 books, and the first half of that story is like the first hour, the first really, really, really long hour of that movie, and you have to read it to understand Jesus. And then second, and this is this just stirs my heart in greater, deeper love for Jesus. If Jesus is the fulfillment and he completes the Old Testament story, it means that we now get to read the Old Testament with Christ's lenses on. We see Jesus in it. We can now uh, read it. We can't read it now without seeing that it's going to culminate in Jesus, what it's preparing us for. It's like this. Did you watch the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance? Yes. Okay. Wow, that was discouraging, actually. The, the Michael, uh, it came out last April, I believe. It's like a month into the pandemic. And it's the story of Jordan's last season with the Bulls. And uh, it's, there's all this turmoil around the leadership, and it's going to be Phil Knight's last year to coach. And Jordan says, okay, if Phil's out, then I'm out. They had won five titles, and so really they've got one more chance to make history and to win their sixth and to win one more. And so the question that's, that's floated out early on in the document, well, very in, in episode one, the question that's floated is, can they do it? Can they win? They've got one more shot. This is the last dance, right? That's where the name comes from. And can they use this season to make history? And it goes into all the drama of that season. That's what makes it so incredible. But not just that. It goes, be, uh, it goes past that season into Jordan's uh, NBA career and then even into his you know, early life and into his college years. Uh, and, and as it dives back in, every episode, though, even if it goes back in history, every episode comes back to the question that it floated, can they win? Every episode ends with some sort of scene about that season with the question of how will the final season end? Will they win number six? What do you know? They won. Most anyone, and if I just spoiled it for you, you had like three decades to figure that out. But they won. Like most people, before they even watch the show, they know that it ends with a championship. Probably the second greatest championship run in history after the Mavs in 2011. So the, the question... <laughs> That lingers, that's my son clapping, and I'm so proud of that. <laughs> the question that lingers over the story, over the entire documentary, that question has already been answered. We know. They did six titles in eight seasons. Jordan is the greatest. And, and as you watch it, even knowing that ending, it doesn't stop you from watching, though. Like the story, even though it's culminating to this ending that you already know, it doesn't make it matter less in ways. The fact that you know it ends with a victory makes it matter more. 
makes you hang on every detail. There's these realizations that just give the ending so much more color and so much more meaning and so much more significance. It gives you a greater appreciation of and understanding of that moment once you get to it. So to look back at the story through the lens of the victory that you already know is coming, it gives that victory greater significance, gives you a greater appreciation for it. Do you already see maybe where we're going? That's how we read the Old Testament. Where was it always headed? Jesus. All of it. The the story, where does it culminate? It culminates in Jesus. Anywhere you turn in the Old Testament, wherever you go back into the story, you know the ending, the culmination, the climax is going to get to Jesus, who's the fulfillment, by his own words, the fulfillment of all of it. It's why Paul says in Ephesians, God set forth in Christ a plan that at the fullness of time to sum up all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That's why one commentator said, the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower, and it blooms in Jesus. The point is Jesus. It's all about Jesus, who did not come to abolish, but came to fulfill. And I just believe one of the reasons God did this was so that we would grow in our awe and worship and and just wonder of who Jesus is, that we would see with depth and worship how wonderful and magnificent our Lord is. Like, to just get a taste of what this means, if we're reading the Old Testament with our Christ lenses on, in Genesis 3, God says to the snake, Genesis 3.15, there's one coming, you will bruise his heel, but he He will crush your head. So we're told of this wounded victor early on in the story, one who would be hurt, one who would be wounded, but also would win, would be victorious. And we look to him in the story. Who is God talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the one who would, uh, his stripes would bring healing. Just moments after death enters the world, we are already being prepared for Christ's wounds and we're already being prepared for his victory over death in his resurrection. You see in the Old Testament, there's places where that marked the presence of God, where God's presence was present on earth, like the burning bush or the tabernacle or the temple. But these things were veiled and they were temporary. They prepare us for Jesus, who is by his very name is Emmanuel, God with us, who's God's presence, not in tabernacle, not in temple, but wrapped in flesh, walking the world he created among the people that he loves. You see in the Old Testament, all these laws around purity and how to stay pure and how to stay undefiled by things that were considered unclean. And the way you stay pure is by staying away from what is impure. And if you get, uh, if you become impure, you have to cleanse yourself. But Jesus comes as one who is so pure, so undefiled that he does not have to stay away from what is unclean, but his very touch does not contract impurity, but it transmits his purity so that he can hold the leper and he can carry the sick and he can be among the sinner because what, when what is impure touches Jesus who is pure, he cleanses them. Or just think of all the people in the Old Testament who point to Jesus. Every single character that prefigures Jesus, that prepares our hearts for him. Adam, the beginning of a race of people. Jesus in Romans 5 is called the second Adam, who is the beginning of a new kind of humanity, a better kind of humanity. He is the better Adam, Jesus is. Not just that, he is faithful to God's promises, even better than Abraham. He follows his father up the mountain, even better than Isaac. He leads a people out of slavery like Moses. He's a righteous king, more faithful than David. He's wiser than Solomon, like Esther. He lays down his life to save his people. He knows suffering like Job. He knows obedience like Daniel. He knows courage like Rahab. He's the best of all the preachers 
preachers. He's the best of all the prophets. He's the best of all the priests. He forever lives to make intercession for us. And all the sacrifices point to him, prepare us for him, his once and for all act of love as the once and for all sacrificial lamb. Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God for by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's why on the cross, he doesn't say all is lost. It's why on the cross, he doesn't even say it has just begun on the cross. He lifts his eyes to heaven with blood on his face and nails in his hand and love in his heart. And he says, it is finished. Goodness, what a wonderful savior. What a to to go back in the story, knowing the point, knowing the beautiful climactic center of all of what God is doing is his son crucified, raised again, ascended to the right hand of the father. Just so magnificent Jesus is. I was encouraged this week remembering this, Um, not just because of the storm. We have a lot of people in our church who are hurting right now just in various ways and for various reasons. And some, goodness, experience the kind of sadness or loss where words just feel empty. I don't know if if you've ever been in that room, but words just feel like they fall short. And I just personally, as a pastor, as a person, I needed to remember the work of Jesus. I needed to remember the wounded victor from Genesis 3.15 whose heel would be bruised so that he would know our pain, but whose heel would also crush so that he has a solution for our pain, so that he brings victory in our pain. The one who knows both pain and triumph, who can sympathize with the hurts of his people, but has also pledged to bring an end to the mess and to bring peace to the pain. Jesus promised, friend, that not a single dot would pass through his hands unfulfilled. Not a single promise would be left incomplete, and that includes his promise to restore all things. That includes the promise to wipe away every tear, and I want you to know it will not be like this forever, my friend. It will not be like this forever. Jesus is near. He knows your wounds. And he also has and is doing something to fix his world and to fix you. 19 through 20, it's the second relationship. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. First relationship, he defines, is the one between him and God's covenant, God's stories. And he says, I fulfill those. I'm the point of those. The second relationship is your relationship to righteousness, my relationship to righteousness. Righteousness is people, is us becoming people who live in a way that pleases God. We live lives uh, of love of God and love of others, like the life that's lined out in the Ten Commandments. Now, I don't know if you feel this, but here's what, here's what I feel in, in reading through those four verses consecutively. Uh, it's a bit of whiplash, right? Like, uh, he just defined how he relates to the Old Testament. He fulfills it, and that includes the requirement of righteousness. It, it includes the... So Jesus lives the righteous life that we couldn't live. Jesus satisfies every ethical command that we couldn't satisfy. He is an embodied walking portrait of the Ten Commandments kept perfectly. And so when he says, I fulfill the Torah and the prophets, that is part of what he means. But right after that, even after saying that, what he wants to talk about is he wants to talk about and define your relationship to righteousness and my relationship 
righteousness. He cares deeply that we are becoming godly people. He wants to, the rest of the sermon is him defining and talking about what it looks like for us to become good people, godly people, whole people. And he puts it in such jaunting terms. He says, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. That word exceeds means greater than. So real quick, in the Old Testament, there were 248 commandments. 248 times it says, do this. There were 365 prohibitions. 365 times it says, don't do this. And before Jesus, no one kept all of them. It's too much. No one could stand and say, I'm doing all 248 all the time, and I'm not doing all the 365, right? But there were a group of people who came closer than than anyone else, and Jesus names them. They were the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, they were so zealous for the law that they took the 248 and they added to them. And they took the 365 and they added to them. They had a really wide righteousness. They had a widening righteousness. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that, you've got no shot. Well, that's impossible. That is impossible. Because of sin in our hearts, because of the way that even those of us who know and love Jesus have been changed by Jesus, the frailty of our own hearts, right? So what many people do at this point because of that, because we look at that and say, no, that's impossible, many people say this, well, he just wasn't serious. Like he was kidding or it's a trick. Uh, He says this only so that we would see how impossible it is so that we would then see our need for a Savior. He takes the best people there are, he says, you've got to be better than them only so that we would see our frailty and see our need for Jesus. Now, hear me. It is true that when you put your life up against God's commands, you will see your need for a Savior. Absolutely. Is that all that Jesus is doing here, though? No. It's not a mind game. It's not a bait and switch. He's the best preacher to ever live. If that's all that he wanted our takeaway to be, he could have done a lot better job of saying that than than using words like, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. No, he says your righteousness has to be greater and he means it. So what becomes really important, if he means it, what becomes really important is understanding what it means to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees because there's a way to read it that'll crush your soul and then there's a way to read it that'll change your life and Jesus wants the latter for all of us. The point of the ethical commands of the Old Testament, hear me, I know we're in some of the density right now. You know what God was after in all of those laws and all those prohibitions? Deuteronomy 6 sums it up as good as any place in the Bible. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's a Hebrew way of saying your whole person. You are to love God with all of you and all that you've got. So what's the aim? Is the aim to know all the answers? No. Is the aim to keep all the rules? No. The aim always was, in all of the rules and all of the commands, the aim is love of God that permeates every inch of your being. It's heart, soul, strength that turns you into and makes you into a complete whole person. It's this picture of a whole person love of God. It's a vision of righteousness that Jesus knows, that Jesus learned since he was a boy, that we would be a whole person, heart, soul, thoughts, emotion, will, and desire love for God. It was always, this is one of the misconceptions, is that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is all law and the God of the New Testament is all grace. And it's just not true. The people of God are welcomed into a covenant of grace, having their sins forgiven through those covenants. And while it was incomplete, while the means have changed because we have Jesus, it was always about a people rescued from sin, forgiven, brought into covenant relationship with God, that they might love God from their heart and become whole people. 
It was always about becoming the people that God always uh, originally intended us to be. It's why even in the Old Testament, God has no time for people who try to keep parts of his law but have no change of heart. Isaiah chapter 1, God says, stop bringing me your sacrifices. Stop. I don't want them anymore. You bring the blood of the sacrifice into my temple. You are a violent people. You have blood on your hands and you don't care. He never wanted just a surface level obedience divorced from heart change. David in Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. My sacrifice is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Those are the things, God, that you do not despise. So when Jesus says your righteousness has to surpass, it has to be greater, he means it. But he's not saying so go earn your salvation. He's not only saying, see how much you need me. He is saying the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was wide and it was thin. Your righteousness will be deep. It is a greater righteousness and it's greater and it's not in degree. It's greater in kind. It's a whole different way of living because it's aimed past the surface of simple rule keeping and it's aimed at your very heart. It's why he'll go on to say, this will be next week and the next several weeks, he'll go on to say, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. I want to go deeper than that and I want you to pay attention to the anger in your heart so that you don't murder someone in your heart. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Let's go past the surface of that and let's talk about the lust that's in your heart. In your marriage, keep your promise. In your relationship, keep your word. With your enemies, offer love. There's a greater righteousness that because Jesus has fulfilled all things and has covered our lives in grace, that he welcomes us into a righteousness that flows from the inside out, that changes us at the level of the heart. And we have to, we have to, Take Jesus at his word here. If you remember when we started this series almost, uh, I guess, six or seven months ago, one of the dangers of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is that we would domesticate it, as others have done, uh, domesticate it so that, it's, so that it's more digestible. And we have to take Jesus at his word here and believe that he means what he says. What exists in a lot of American Christianity, what exists in a lot of evangelicalism right now is a very thin discipleship. It's a discipleship that's simply aimed at our heads to produce right answers. And Jesus has better for us than that. He has better for our church than that. He has better for your life than that. His discipleship does not simply aim at the head to produce right answers. Jesus' discipleship aims at the heart to produce whole people, righteous people, godly people. And that's the rest of the sermon. That's where he goes. He walks us down that path towards wholeness, towards righteousness in the rest of the sermon. Now, where we'll end this morning, just observe with me, which relationship does he define first? Which one comes first? Before Jesus says your righteousness has to be greater by being deeper, he says what? I've come to fulfill. I've come to fulfill all of it. Do you see the grace that because Jesus comes and fulfills, he fulfills not only the requirement of righteousness, but he also fulfills the penalty of those who have failed to be righteous so that now we get to pursue this life with Jesus of a deeper righteousness that makes us whole people who love God with all we've got, but we do so not for God's love. We do so from Jesus's victory. We do so from his fulfillment because he's gone before us. We can know that we can walk in his grace, that his commands are for our good. And why this is so important is I've, I've spent all of my life around Christians. And one of the things that I have learned about my own heart and about most of us is that we are just so bent to hear any instruction from God or any command of God. We're so bent to hear those as threats from God. We believe that they're cold commands from an angry God who is just ready to abandon us in our failure. 
Uh, I am blessed by God to have a, a good and godly dad. My earthly father is a godly man. And my earliest memories with him is uh, he made us work all the time, work around the house uh, with, you know, mowing the lawn, do projects with him, helping him work on a car or whatever. He's a, a jack-of-all-trades kind of guy, uh, which, unfortunately, it's not genetic. I was reminded so many times this week that it's not. Uh, but in a sense, the, the first person that I ever worked for was my dad. The first person I ever took orders from was my dad. And uh, he's a kind man. He's kind, he's gentle, he's quiet. And he would tell me what to do, he'd teach me what to do, and sometimes he'd leave me to do it, but most times he'd stay with me in the project and we would, and we would work together. Uh, and his commands and him telling me what to do, it never felt like the relationship was on the line because I felt so secure with him because he's godly, because he's good, because he's kind. My first job outside the home was waiting tables. And in that job, I had a boss who was not kind. He's the kind of boss that fired people on a whim and they were always cold and always irritable and work was fun. Uh, I remember uh, feeling, early on, I remember feeling the difference between the work I did at work and the work I did at home because of how different my boss was from my father. At work, commands felt like threats. At work, there was no guarantee that questions would be met with patience or failure would be met with grace. Mostly, there was no guarantee that the person telling me what to do actually cared about me as I did it. So the work always felt a bit like the job was on the line. Which one is God? Which one is God? I just believe so many of us think God is a cold boss. And so we hear his commands as threats and believe we're going to be left to do this, this project of, of becoming whole people. We're going to be left to do that all by ourselves uh, without messing up. And, and our relationship, our approval is on the line. And I really need this job, right? God is not a cold boss. God is a good father. He's not, he is a good father. His commands are for our good. He says there's work that we need to do in your life, and there's work that we need to do in my life, and I'm going to be present with you in the work. He's patient with you. He has time for your questions. He has grace for your failures. Jesus fulfilled all. The first relationship comes before the second. He satisfies all of the requirement of a righteous life, all of the penalty for those who fail to live that life, and because of what he's done, it means that God will never command you to do that something that Jesus himself has not already done, already completed, and already paid the penalty if you fail to do it. And so that frees us to welcome that work in our life. John Calvin will talk about how uh, we uh, obey the commands of God differently now because of Jesus. We're obeying from that freedom and from that fulfillment. And he launches into this beautiful musing on what Jesus has done. He says, for he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness. He died for our life so that by him, fury is made gentle, wrath is appeased, darkness turned to light, fear reassured, labor lightened, hell transfixed, death is dead, mortality made immortal, in short, mercy has swallowed up misery, and goodness all misfortune. That's what God has done in Jesus, and now the one who has done all that goes before us and walks with us and longs for us to become whole, to slowly, surrounded by his grace in relationship, the one who fulfilled all and who declared on the cross, it is finished, wants you and me to follow him down a journey of becoming whole people, a righteousness that penetrates all the way to the heart. And he spends the rest of his sermon describing what that looks like. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. 
I thank you, Jesus, that in you we have hope. I thank you that in you we have uh, all that the heart has longed for is satisfied in you, Lord Jesus. We worship you as the one who kept God's promises on our behalf. We worship you as the one who satisfied God's requirement on our behalf. We worship you as the one who, even in the midst of chaos and crisis, remains faithful and stable and constant, offering us, as you promise in your word, new mercies every day. I pray that we would take you seriously, Jesus, that you saved us to change us. Pray that we would take you, that we would not try to minimize your words, that that even in a, a week that was chaotic, that we take seriously that you're using crisis in our life as an invitation to make us look more like you, Jesus. That you will often allow things in our life to grow less stable, that you will often allow suffering in our lives, God. That places in our lives that we have held so tightly to things that cannot sustain us, that we would begin to let go of those things, that we would return to that picture of you, Jesus, as the wounded victor who stood in our place, who knows wounds and knows pain and also has secured a forever future for us that our worst-case scenario because we are in Christ as resurrection and eternal life. So we thank you, Jesus, for your work, for what you've done. We love you. Amen.